The NBA playoffs are heating up, and so is the action at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NBA. With same-game parlays, live betting, odds boosts, and so much more, don't miss out as the NBA postseason winds down. And if you're new to DraftKings, you got to check this out. New customers bet 5 bucks to get 150 in bonus bets instantly. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code ROSS. That's code ROSS for new customers to get 150 in bonus bets when you bet just 5 bucks. Only on DraftKings. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net in New York. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus age varies by jurisdiction. Void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash football for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. You're listening to DraftKings Network. You're tuned in to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Guiding your gridiron journey, none other than your host, former NFL lineman, Ross Tucker. Oh, yeah, it is. But it's not just any Ross Tucker Football Podcast. It is a Monster Monday, but a little bit different. Actually, a Christmas Monday edition of the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. It's got a little bit of a different format today. Told you about it last week. Long-form interview with my guy, Gary Myers. I think you're going to really enjoy it. We'll recap all the games tomorrow's show on Tuesday and then power rankings on Wednesday this week. Shout-out goes out to Becca Schaefer, patron of the day, patreon.com. Slash RT Media. It's Big Show time. The Big Show. As promised, so excited to be joined by my buddy. Don't get a chance to see him every week during the season like I did for, I don't know, five or six years when we worked together on This Week in Football on the Yes Network. He's a pretty awesome pro football writer. In fact, in terms of books, I don't know anyone that's written more books about the NFL, better books about the NFL. Uh, Brady and Manning and The Catch. And he's got a new one, which I wanted to dive into, especially this time of year. And then also need to talk to him because he's a Hall of Fame voter. So doubling down on my buddy Gary Myers, longtime NFL writer, who I guess is it fair to say, Gary, these days you focus on your books, right? I, I do. And uh, yeah, this was my sixth book. I just want to tell everybody how proud I am of you because when we work together, at the Yes Network, you were just really starting out as a media member. And, you know, as, as a writer, we're always are skeptical about, oh, these guys think they can just step in and do it. We've been trained to do our whole careers. But you were great on that show. And I used to always tease you about your career, and you were so good-natured about it. You stuck around for a long time for a guy for Princeton, and now to parlay it into, a, you know, just a really high-profile, great media career. Like I said, I'm really proud of you. Wow. Thank you, Gary. That means a lot. Thank you so much for saying that. And congratulations on your latest book. I just got my copy, Once a Giant. And I don't know why, Gary, and my wife knows this, I don't watch a lot of television. Um, I really don't. And by the way, Gary, I, when I say that, I like to say it like this. 
I don't watch much television as a Princeton grad. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> like I, I have no issue with TV. I just don't happen to, to watch a lot. Um, yeah. But when I do, I like to watch like America's team or America's game, 30 yeah. for 30s, documentaries, missing rings, stuff like that. And stuff like Once a Giant, right? Where I don't want to take, take the words out of your mouth, but, um, you know, where you really did a deep dive into that team and that team that year and kind of where they are now, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's really more about life after football. And, uh, I mean, you know what that's like, how brutal a sport it is. And I didn't want to write a book about the 86 season because that was done so many times right after they won that Super Bowl. But 37 years later, what what challenges did these guys face as a result uh, of playing in such a physical, brutal sport? You know, the mental health challenges, financial challenges in some cases, physical challenges in most cases. Um, and Ross, there were four players on the record in the book who have told me that at some point since their career's over, they considered suicide, that things have gotten so bad, had gotten so bad. Fortunately, they were able to come out the other side of it. And, you know, rather than having 300 pages of depressing stories, I kind of bounced it off with how this team really became a brotherhood, you know, winning a championship together. You know, if you remember, those were the days before free agency. So 84 and 85, they were building towards the moment in 86 and, and really went into that season thinking they were going to win it. And I tell a lot of behind the scenes stories about the fun that they had with each other. And the practical jokes they played, which you know is so necessary during the course of a season to keep things, you know, light in the locker room. Otherwise, it can really drag you down. So uh, one of the really cool parts of the book is about how these guys, all these years later, almost four decades later, have really stayed in touch and are taking care of each other as they grow old together. You know, it's interesting, um, Gary. So I'm 44 so, and I haven't played, uh, I retired in 2008, but you hear these stories about guys like what you said, but a lot of times the players I'm around because they're out in the public or they're doing something, I don't see a lot of those guys or talk to those guys that are having issues like that. Uh, but I know they're out there and I hear that they're out there. Uh, but I've also been told a lot of times they don't really want to talk about it. You know, these are guys that their whole life people have treated them special and they were stars in high school and stars in college and they played in the NFL. And sort of the last thing they want to do now is tell people how bad things are or how bad things have gotten or why life's been such a struggle post-football. How did you get these guys to open up? You know, one of the things that uh... – I always prided myself on in, in over 40 years of covering the NFL is developing relationships and developing trust. And the interesting thing to me, I covered the Giants way back, uh, 78 to 81. And then I moved to Dallas from 81 to 89. So I wasn't even here in 86, but I knew a lot of the players that won that championship, like Sims and Taylor and Carson and George Martin and Jim Burt, because they were, Giants before I moved away. And then when I moved back, uh, a good deal of them was still here. And so I started being around them, you know, on more of an everyday basis. I came back to New York in 89 as the NFL columnist for the Daily News. So I kind of split my time between the Giants and the Jets 
and, and covering the league. But I, I always felt like the most important thing was to develop trust with the players and that they know if they said something to you off the record that you weren't going to write it under any circumstances. And if it was a sensitive topic and they were relying on you to write it sensitively, that you didn't disappoint them. So when it came time for me to talk to them about these issues that they're having as they're in their late 50s and late 60s and they're growing old together as a team, I felt I went in there kind of with a running start, so to speak, because I knew these guys and they knew they can trust me. And as I sat in Mark Bavaro's living room and he told me how he suffered through long-term COVID to the point that he sat in his living room chair and was, you know, for a long time, he wondered how guys that he played with like Dave Dewerson and Andre Waters and somebody he became friendly with like Junior Seau, how things could reach the level of despair that they would take their own lives. And, you know, how could it be that bad that you would want to end it? And so after about six months of going through this long-term COVID, which he thinks the virus might've attacked his brain because his brain was vulnerable from all the concussions that he suffered. And he was became paranoid and anxious and afraid to go out in public. And he couldn't sleep at night. He's sitting in this chair in the living room telling me the story and he was saying, about five months earlier, he was sitting in the same chair saying, I finally understand why Dave Dewerson, who we played with at Notre Dame and with the Giants, and Andre Waters, who we played with in Philadelphia, how they reached that point in their lives where they just ended it. because And each one of them subsequently was diagnosed with CTE. And, and Ross, in, in a very compelling way, he said, it was his intellectual side saying, Mark, you'll be okay. You just got to fight through this. You just got to find the right meds and the right doctors, and this will this will pass. Versus his emotional side that was saying, "For how long can you stand on the edge of side of a mountain and not jump?" And it was a battle he was fighting in his brain. He said his brain was literally on fire from COVID, um, and, and finally, through some help with the people at the Giants, he found the right doctors in Boston. He lives outside of Boston and was right, able to get on the right meds. And I don't think he's back to being 100%. This happened around Easter of 2021 when he first got sick. Um, so it's now, what, two and a half years later. Uh, I, I don't think he's 100%, but he's getting close to that. Um, and, you know, I stayed in touch with him even after the book came out, just checking up on him to make sure he's okay. So, Gary, I guess... Um... And maybe this is selfishly from my perspective, but if you had to like break it down, uh, how many of the guys would you say are really doing well and still thriving? And how many of them are struggling and how many of them are somewhere in between? And I know they're all individuals and it doesn't necessarily relate to how other people I know or how I would be, but I guess I'm just curious because, yeah. you know, I think when they're players, you think of all of them as doing great. And then we hear these stories and some of these statistics and numbers of that not being the case. What did you kind of find, you know, the like off the napkin, so to speak, in terms of the breakdown of Giants? You'd say, man, he's really thriving, doing great, as opposed to guys that are that are struggling and then guys in between. Well, everybody's got something, Ross. Uh, nobody got, gets out of this game unscathed. Um, I'm sure, you know, you have aches and pains to this day you know, for as long as you played. Um, 
there were some guys who were doing much better than others, obviously, um, depending on the degree of where they are physically and financially. Guys like Carl Banks have had, uh, he's a very, very successful businessman, but, you know, he's had back pains. Uh, Phil Sims, uh, he's been on national television for 30 straight years, basically from the day that he retired. And he had such a tremendous back pain five years ago that um, actually it was 2015, so a little more than five years ago. He went to a giant preseason game specifically to meet with the team doctor who was there during his playing career. And he had had three back surgeries and he felt completely incapacitated. He was in pain. He wasn't, you know, he was looking ahead at the upcoming season covering games for CBS and didn't know how he was going to get through it. And the doctor said, okay, you got to come into my office in the city and really do a good workup on you. And Phil said, I, I just don't have the time to do that. Phil left before that preseason game was over, Ross. And I mean, before it even started, because he just went to see the doctor, drove home 20 minutes to his house in New Jersey. Now, remember, Phil's father was an alcoholic and he's always been very cognizant of that. And he's nothing more than a social drinker. But he was in such pain and feeling so despondent that there was no answer for his back problems that he went home, took a bottle of vodka from his liquor cabinet, poured two glasses straight and was taking pain pills with it, which we know is not a good combination. And his pain was so severe that he didn't get any relief from the alcohol or the painkillers. And finally, he talked to his son, Chris, that night, who, when he was in Denver, had found a doctor. The best way I can describe it is like a pain management expert of sorts, a muscle activation guy. Phil went to San Diego that weekend to cover a game and stopped in Denver on the way back for about four days. And he said when he got there and the doctor put his, his hand on Phil's wrist, he couldn't resist the weight. And by the time he left there four days later, he said he could have put a truck on his arm and he would have been able to help, help hold it up. And he said, and this this was sticks with me, he said, that guy saved my life because he didn't know how he was going to be able to live with all that pain. Now, I'm not saying Phil is not one of the four guys who contemplated taking his life, but he walked out of Giant Sta MetLife Stadium that night after meeting with the doctor and he said, you know, damn it. Am I going to be one of those guys that just has to live with this pain the rest of my life? And how am I going to deal with it? So that's an example of a guy that outwardly you never would have known how much he was suffering. But after three back surgeries, it hadn't done anything for him to the point he was take, he was drinking straight alcohol with painkillers. So that, that's kind of an extreme case. But, you know, I interviewed players who had a, Maurice Carthon had a stroke. William Roberts had a brain tumor that fortunately wasn't uh, malignant. Um, other players have had body parts replaced. Uh, Carl Banks teases Brad Benson, an old offensive lineman. He calls him Mr. Potato Head. Didn't have any surgeries during his career, but after his career has had surgeries on basically every body part and, you know, some replacements. So, wow. you know, from that, that, from that era, Ross, I just want to say one other thing. From that era when guys suffered concussions, and maybe you went through some of this, but I think it was a little better by the time you played. You know, if they suffered a concussion, they call them to the sideline and the trainer would say, what's your name, what stadium are you in, and what day of the week it is. And if you answered those questions correctly, they put you right back in the game. Yeah. And now you don't see that player for three weeks. So it's changed.
Yeah. I want to ask you about Belichick as well, uh, Gary. I did want to say first, though, that um, love drinking Labatt Blue Lights with my friends, my family, living life to the power of we. Always enjoy it responsibly, of course. Beer Labatt USA, Buffalo, New York. So Belichick's been in the news recently, Gary, and there was a report recently that that Robert Kraft is going to move on from him. It's kind of stunning to think that we got here. And and you've been around him a lot over the years. And I know you interviewed him for this book. Just sort of your, your thoughts on, on kind of what's happened there and, and uh, what's next for him. It is amazing considering that I won six Super Bowls and now we're talking about what the exit strategy is going to be for both of them. And he's under contract past this year. So Robert Kraft is too smart a businessman to fire him and get nothing in return. He got to give up a first round pick to get him from the Jets. He's going to want a first round pick to let him go coach somewhere else. I, I think it's it. You just reach. They've reached that point, that period of time where, I, I think it's mutually beneficial for them to go their separate ways. Bill wants to break Shula's record. He needs sixteen more victories to do it. Who knows how long that will take in New England with the state of that team, which is why I think the charges make the most sense. The other component of this is that, you know, Bill has always been, you know, a team oriented guy. Don't think about individual uh, recognition or achievements. It's always about the team. But he, he's 71 or 72 years old now, and he's so close to that record. So how who could blame him for not wanting to be remembered as the all time winningest coach? And, and Ross, the other factor here is it was always like the Brady Belichick argument for 20 years. And we can make a case for either one of them of who is more responsible. But considering what happened, what's happened in the four years since Brady left New England and winning a championship in his first year in Tampa and Belichick, things getting worse each of these years, that the narrative is switched that it was more Brady than Belichick. And I think the only way he reverses that and changes his legacy somewhat is by winning a championship without Brady. And... I think the Chargers would give him the best opportunity of all the jobs that you would consider right now to be open after the season because they have a built-in situation with Justin Herbert. They have some good defensive players. They need some tinkering here and there, and I think they can compete for a championship in two years, which would give him a chance to break the record and win a Super Bowl. So I think that's the ideal situation. In addition to the Chargers needing to really make an impact in that community where they're clearly the second team to the Rams. It's a really good point, Gary. Uh, you also are a Hall of Fame voter, which is awesome. And you have been for how many years now? About 12 years now. I really do enjoy that. Okay. Tell me, I'm going to give you an open-ended question. Tell me one thing or tell my audience one thing about being a Hall of Fame voter that they don't really understand or that they wouldn't know or wouldn't realize when they're saying, how is this guy not in? How is this guy not in? This guy should be in, et cetera. Well, we have 50 voters on the panel. So anybody's individual agenda um, doesn't really carry the day because you need to get a lot of votes to get in. Um, I think it's a very thorough process up to the point that we voted down to. We're at the point now where we got the list of 25 semifinalists. And I think... Monday or Tuesday is the deadline to vote it down to 15. So 
up to the point of 15, we're pretty much on our own. We'll get a lot of information from the Hall of Fame and then from pe other people, ad people advocating for any of the candidates. So we have a lot of material to read. I do a lot of the research myself. Once we get it to 15, uh, we're going to meet in Atlanta in the middle of January to pick the seniors and the um, and the contributor and then the five modern era candidates. At that point, we make presentations uh, in front of the entire group. Um, I know I take this responsibility incredibly seriously because they always tell us at the beginning of the meeting, we're going to change lives. And until you experience that by being around these players and you see how much it means to them, um, you don't really understand the impact it has to be recognized. There's only like 360 people in the Hall of Fame and probably like 325 players, something like that, and the rest, you know, coaches, owners, et cetera. So out of the 20,000 or so players who have played in the NFL, to think you're in the elite category of 325 or so, that's an amazing accomplishment. Not, Ross, I've been pushing for you the last few years. I've been doing my, my damnedest. I think I'm getting some traction going here. I've really been saying, look how many different teams he played for. He obviously was in demand. He's a smart guy, went to Princeton. What's not to like? Uh, hey, Gary, if I, if, I, if I wasn't good, would five teams have signed me? Or would that's, five that's teams require me? You know what I mean? Like, people never look at it that way. No. They always talk about the guy that plays 20 years for one team and goes to all these Pro Bowls. What about someone like me that had all these teams that even after I got fired, they still thought I was good enough to give another chance to? I, I, Ross, I, you were a trendsetter because you, you went on to prove that maybe it's beneficial to play for all these different coaches because one day you – I know you're going to write a book one day and you could talk about your experiences – in New England and in, in Buffalo, Dallas, and I forget who else you played for, but um, I think that Washington and Cleveland, Washington. Okay, yeah, you got a couple um, of good ones for sure. So, yeah. um, yeah. So, what's interesting to me about that, about the Hall of Fame, more recently, is it seems clear, Gary, that at certain positions and with certain guys, that you are now, I don't know, the best way to phrase this, but that there's like a you're making certain guys wait or you're rewarding certain guys for waiting. In other words, you might think, okay, player X might have a little bit of a better case than player Y, but player Y has been a finalist for nine years and player X, this is his first year and he's great, but he's not necessarily a first ballot guy. It feels like from afar that that might be going on. And I don't know, I don't have necessarily have a problem with it. I just, I just think that that, it feels like that's going on. Russ, I, I can tell you in all honesty that I vote for the five players who I think are most deserving, regardless of how long they've been waiting. And I, I'd like to think that should be really the standard that we live by. Because what difference does it make how long you've been waiting um, if you're not as good as somebody else that you're going up against? And, I mean, the shame of it is a lot of good players – go through the 20 years of modern era eligibility, and then they get stuck in the senior pool, which is very, very hard to get out of. Then you're competing against every player who's ever played who's not in the Hall of Fame. And there are, you know, there's some guys in that pool that you look at and you go, how'd they get that far? Why aren't they already in the Hall of Fame? Um, we do make a big deal about first ballot Hall of Famers, and there's a lot of discussion in the room when a guy comes up. And, uh, you know, I'll just mention... 
you know, somebody like Brian Urlacher, who got in on the first ballot a few years ago, that I thought eventually he was a Hall of Fame player. I didn't know that he was good enough, strictly based on being good enough, to jump over some guys who had been waiting, because I, whether they were in the first year of eligibility, the fifth together, I thought some of those other guys were more deserving than Urlacher. It really didn't have to do with him being his first year. It's just I thought other guys deserved it. And there's been other guys like that. And off the top of my head, maybe Jason Taylor's another one. Um, and I don't mean to pick these guys not out as not being Hall of Fame worthy, but I think they jumped the line a little bit. Um, and not because other guys have been waiting. Again, it's because I thought the other guys were more deserving. And, and this year we have two first-year players, first-time eligibles, in um, Antonio Gates and Julius Peppers. And I think going in, you'd say they each have a really good chance of making it on the first ballot. I don't know what your feelings are about those guys, but uh, if they didn't make it the first time around, I wouldn't be. Yeah, they, they are. They that. are absolutely both fantastic, fantastic mm -hmm. players. I wouldn't have a problem with either one of them. I will say this. I won't have a problem with every one of you guys listening or watching gets once a giant a story of victory, tragedy, and life after football. I haven't dove into it yet, Gary, but I can't wait. Spring and especially summer is my book reading season. Thank you so much for coming on the show, man. Really appreciate it. I really appreciate it, Ross. Amazon, all your favorite stores, and you being a Princeton grad and all these plane flights you're taking, I'm really disappointed you haven't read it yet. <laughs> Love that conversation with Gary Myers. A lot of different stuff in there. By the way, as you're watching the games today and hopefully listening to me, if you're feeling good about your picks but not sure what to eat, make it easy on yourself. Order in on DoorDash. Now you can root for your squad while your food and drinks are on the way. Burgers, chips, dips, soda, pizza, wings, so much more delivered straight to your door. And how about HubSpot? We're going in the fourth quarter right now. It's where games are won. Champions are made. In business, it's where sales teams become legends. That's why HubSpot built Sales Hub. To give sales reps the deal-making tools they need to win their Q4, Sales Hub's prospecting workspace organizes your schedule, goal, to-do list in one place to save your team precious fourth quarter time. And smart sequences help sales reps close deals faster than ever. So get ready to dominate Q4 with Sales Hub. Learn more at HubSpot.com sales. I think we're done here. Thanks for tuning in to the Ross Tucker Football Podcast. Make sure to also check out Even Money, Fantasy Feast, and College Draft, all on the DraftKings Network on Samsung TV+, YouTube, or subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform. Shout out MyFrontPageStory.com. All right, now today it's probably too late. I mean, like, if you still haven't gotten anything for them today, uh, actually, you know what? You could order it right now, print it out, and just... Give them the printed out. That's what I'm doing with one of my wife's gifts today. Print it out, give it to them, and say, hey, the story is in the works. Maybe that's a better way to do it. MyFrontPageStory.com. BackOfficeSchedule.com. SteakhouseSports.com. HumanHeadNYC.com. Sportaculture. And Pizza Boy Brewing.